0: And welcome to Way Too Twog's Bagpipe and History Podcast, where I, your host Jeremy, explores the possible repertoire of 18th and early 19th century bagpipers. Come and let's enjoy some tunes. Well, for many of the last several episodes, I have talked about how long various episodes have been in progress, or half-recorded, or that sort of thing, and this, our season finale episode, is no exception to that. Uh, arguably, my thinking about and preparing for this episode began uh, with Season 7, Episode 1, uh, where I talked about the various uh, women composers attri- uh, that were attributed in Watlin celebrated circus tunes. Uh, and actually, on Season 7, Episode 1, I mentioned that I really hoped that I was, I, was, I knew I was going to need to spend a lot more time with some of the settings to try to make them work on uh, bagpipes, uh, especially the ones written by, who I think, uh, Christian Dalrymple. And that I wanted to do this uh, specifically for an LBPS, or Lowland and Border Piper Society, uh, session that I was going to be kind of leading. And I did that. I worked out uh, a bagpipe setting, and more than that, I worked out a bagpipe kind of set using all tunes, either written by or about or both, uh, women. Uh, Christian Delrymple and Eliza Ross, uh, all these tunes. And more to the point, uh, they also all use that low F, which I first encountered from a woman piper, right? From uh, Richie Campbell, uh, her playing um, Loss, uh, that album with Ross Ainsley, where she tapes down in order to get to that kind of note below G. Uh, and granted, I think on there she's playing C-pipe, so I guess it's below A, or below A. Uh, yeah, below B, so like the, the A note. Anyway, um, the like extra, extra lead-in note that you get by taping down. So that's what I'm going to play first for you. Uh, so this is a set of tunes that I, I wound up teaching uh, LVPS and uh, kind of writing my own setting for, and these are uh, Miss Mary uh, from Eliza Ross. It seems like there's another name, but it's unclear in the manuscript. And then Miss Watson's favorite, uh, composed by probably Christian Dalrymple. Uh, and then another unnamed Eliza Ross jig. Um, but yeah, they all use that that low F note. And at this point, I am using... Uh, the, the recording here is on my Quiet Piper Small Pipes, which taped down Lovely to do that. some pretty lovely tunes i don't think anybody certainly nobody competed with those tunes that was the whole point right of the LB, lbps tune session uh was to focus on tunes written by women or with titles related to women because that was going to be uh or, or t- titles with tune women in the title where was what the category was supposed to be for the competition that year or, or that that competition, uh, and like I said, nobody won who attended my session or or used those tunes. But uh, it was still really fun to do it. There was several other tunes that I, I led people through. Um, I guess, and in kind of how I got to those is, is what led to this episode. Uh, I wound up doing some like trying to dig around uh, to to find the name of I had I'd heard about some uh, Scottish uh, female like collectors of tunes and and poets and i was trying to figure out quite who they were and i couldn't remember the details so it just led to some like googling of of various keywords and uh wound up exposing myself to uh, quite a few kind of interesting folks and i didn't really get time to dig into it as much as i hoped to before doing the leps session but just kind of scoured through the resources to find um like to find tunes, <laughs> to find tunes. Uh, and so the first one is sort of a misattributed, uh, misattributed title. So I was, I was looking through Miss Brown, uh, or Anna Gordon, uh, from Aberdeenshire. She was a really impressive collector of ballads, uh, kind of neglected and... Uh, frowned upon in her time, and I think she's going to wind up getting a whole episode, hopefully, in season eight, uh, as I get some more time to dig into her. But uh, just kind of the quick Wikipedia Cliff Notes version of this is she had a number of uh, ballads where she's like kind of the oldest source, the most important source for them, uh, especially as far as Child was concerned, uh, who's kind of a big deal in in ballads, and she was scorned by uh, people who were more her contemporaries in the 1790s, uh, like Wrightson, I think described her as newfangled or something and sir walter scott thought that she was uh fabricating stuff but the the real quick explanation here or the the reality is that um mrs brown learned her ballads from her mother and a nursemaid who would learned it from other women and it seems like this is the the thing that's exciting to kind of dig into more it seems like there's a whole different set of lyrics to common ballads that are kind of shared amongst women's spaces and like this is so often a problem with uh you know understanding popular culture of the 18th and 19th or 20th century even um but of the past in general is you so often we have prioritized uh the male voice and like that men were only allowed to have certain professions um and so you just wind up with this really male-centric thing so i encounter this a lot when teaching indigenous studies where um like the, uh, like, I guess the easiest example I can think of is the uh, there's a lot of Cherokee oral tradition uh, collected by a male ethnographer named uh, James Mooney, and most of his sources were men, but Cherokee were in like pretty segregated by gender spaces where uh, women often lived around other women, and men lived around other men. So, like, they had different stories. Um, and predating uh, Mooney, whose uh, versions often comes from a man named The Swimmer, like, there was a Cherokee woman who published similar, like, the same stories, but from the woman's perspective, and it really emphasizes different things. Um, specifically in, like, the... Um, well, any anyway, I won't get into it. But like the so the same thing seems to be happening in the balladry collection, uh, except, uh, you know, in Cherokee society where women and men were equally valued and had equal representation in the law. The opposite is the case in um, most British society. Although, as we'll talk later, it seems like uh, women in Scotland fare a little bit better legally speaking uh, than women in England, but. Um, still, uh, anyway, interesting stuff. Uh, and looking through Miss Brown, she has uh, I wound up buying her her book, uh, like a, a publication of her book. And some of it had it was mostly lyrics, but there was a couple of um, a couple of sheet like notations too. And I got really excited because uh, it was my first exposure to uh, Timus Rhymer and uh, Queen of Elfland, which is essentially I'm I'm more familiar with the. Um, the, the, I think, the, the better-known English version of that story, uh, which is, um, Tam... Oh, Tamelin right? Tamalin, that whole story of, um... Kind of marrying a fairy queen and that sort of thing, um, and the Scottish version is Thomas Reimer and uh, Anna Gordon or, or Mrs. Uh, Mrs. Brown. Uh, like she's kind of the source, right, for the the Scottish version of this. This is where we get it. Um, anyway, looking through the book, uh, I, I taught this tune as Thomas Reimer and Queen of Elfland to LBPS, but really it's it's not. It's I just misread. Uh, basically, I was hopeful because uh, Anna Gordon doesn't have the notation for. Uh, Thomas Reimer and Queen of Elfland, and so I was thinking that it was just that um, she had the music for a previous ballad, Clark Cloven, or Colvin, and then all these other tunes after it, and I like so often these tunes reuse melodies uh, that I thought maybe that's what's going on. And it maybe is what was going on, but uh, Thomas Reiner and Queen of Elfland are like sung by enough people that don't use this melody that I'm, I'm not really convinced by my. Uh, assumptions of before. but either way, it's still a really cool tune uh, and kind of leans itself to uh, lends itself to kind of balladry and, and kind of long repetition tunes. And to me it sounded like a story similar to Tem- uh, Tem- Tam rather of you know fairies and relationships and things that way. So anyway, here is uh, the setting for Clark Colvin from uh, Anna Gordon or Mrs. Brown of Falkland. really really cool melody i'll uh i'll see if i can't find a link to the lyrics to kind of include include in there we're gonna have a lot of lyrics in this episode so i'm not gonna be too worried about it uh the next melody that i wound up teaching to lbps uh, I kind of, it's it, on the face of it, it works. It is a, a tune that has a, t- a woman in the title, uh, which is Tibby Fowler. And I, I found it by looking up, again, this kind of generic search for women from the borders who wrote poetry and songs. And it introduced me to kind of a lovely and very historically important woman, Susanna Blemeyer. Blimeyer, I think. I just listened to uh, a couple webinars where they were discussing her, and somebody pointed out specifically saying her name correctly, and now it is escaping me. Um, but it's really interesting I really love this woman's work. Uh, she wrote many interesting poems about kind of the state of women and uh, courtship and the legal system and she's really valued by scholars today it seems like because she uh, did medicine like she was a medical pratici- practitioner you know like in in pretty rural countryside uh, and she also had a disability and kind of wrote about those things in a way that's pretty non-existent for, like, to hear a woman's perspective, especially in the rural countryside uh, in the 18th century. Like, she just checks a lot of boxes for people, and uh, she's being really useful for kind of understanding the state of medicine and healthcare and women's role within those fields and disability in the 18th century. And so it's interesting that my interest in in her work is so purely kind of gender-centric in terms of uh, women's status—it feels pretty juvenile compared to what some some interesting scholars are doing. That. And I'll have a, I'll, I'll link in the show notes here if you want to watch the video, kind of discussing uh, Susanna as a poet, as well as a medical provider, as well as somebody who uh, had a disability. She's uh, a really interesting cat. But anyway, I saw that she had wrote poems to popular songs, and um, and some of the times she wrote like kind of alternate versions of those songs like if you're more familiar with them uh, from the more male-centric point of view she would write a response to it and one of those was Tibby Fowler so uh, for LBPS's sake I went and looked at the Tibby Fowler setting uh, and it shows up in um, the Drummond Castle manuscript as Tibby Fowler in the Glen and it's a lovely tune it's just a two-part tune and by the time I was kind of working on it and and thinking about teaching it i wound up making a whole big variation set out of it and honestly i like i did all this work to find uh tunes kind of written by women and doing funky stuff and uh my variation set the Tibby father in the Glen was clearly the most uh the thing that people were the most excited about in that lbps session versus all of these kind of women i was excited to talk about who seemingly had been lost to history like uh christian del Rimpel and um and and Susanne Blumeyer to to a certain extent too. So, but anyway, Tibby Fowler and the Glen works really well as a variation set. And uh, here you can hear my my take on what a variation set might sound like of Tibby Fowler and the Glen. <laughs> Really picking up here. I am recording this from an RV in my in-laws' uh, driveway down here in North Carolina, and uh, yeah, the I'm not sure. I'm I'm sure the zoom is picking up some of this rain, but you know who doesn't love some rain in the background? So we're going to keep going. Uh, like I said, I was introduced to this uh, kind of to, to think looking for Tibby Fowler from looking at the work of Susanna Blumeyer, and. She's a she's a really interesting cat. And like I said, she has several interesting songs and they're oftentimes or, or at least sometimes they are her response to um, some fairly male centric versions or like some blatantly misogynistic uh, or just some like good old casual sexists uh, of the time. Uh, songs from the the borders, right? Because she's from Cumbria, or and it's actually what she was known as was the Muse of Cumbria, and if you like me don't have a great sense of um, kind of British Isles geography by the county uh, Cumbria is essentially just to the west of Northumberland right so it is the uh, it's also on the Scottish borders and uh, but on the English side and yeah so I, I really like that and uh, I guess to get a, a good sense of this like I said that was my introduction to Tibby Fowler uh, here's first you and McCall singing the setting of Tibby Fowler uh, that that Robert burns wrote down and uh, Susanna Blumeyer was really a contemporary of Burns, and like Burns, she wrote both in the Cumbrian dialect and in Scots dialect at times. Um, so anyway, here is Ewan McCall singing uh, Robert Burns' setting for Tibby, Tibby Fowler.
1: Tibby Fowler, o'er oh the glen, that's our money wooing at our. Tibby Fowler, o' oh the Glen, there's o' money wooing at her. Wooing at her, at her, at her, canny he get her. Filthy elf, it's for our pelf that all the lads are wooing at her. Ten came east and ten came west, ten came rowin' o'er the water. Twa came doon the lang dyke side, there's twa and thirty wooen atar, wooen Wooin at atar, pooin at, at, at canny he get our filthy outfits for our pelf that all the lads are wooin at her. There's seven buttons, seven bands, seven in the pantry we har. Twenty he'd the door there's in and forty wooin atar wooin atar, poen natar kurin natar canny he get her filthy outfits for her pelf that all the lads are wooin atar. she's got pindles in her lugs, cockle shells would set her better. High-heeled shoon and cellar tags, and all the lads are wooing at her. Wooing at her, pooing at her, at her, canny he get her. Filthy elf, it's for our pelf that all the lads are wooing at her. Be a lassie block, and she he the Nemo sellar cellar. Set our pot into tap, the wind will blow a mantelar. Woo and at our poo and at get filthy alfits for our pelf, that all the lads are woo and at our be allah and she want the penny seller. A flea me fell hard in the air before a man be even teller. Woo and atar, poo and atar, court and Felthy for our pelf, but all oh, the lads are woo attar.
0: With that is Ewan McCall, uh, lovely demonstration of Robert Byrne's setting for it. Here is Susanna Blahmeyer's uh, setting for it, uh, but framed as I'm Tibby Fowler. Uh, and it doesn't really disagree with some of the stuff Byrne says, like that everybody's looking for her pelf, looking for her money, uh, or dishonestly. Like, yeah, like that's sort of fitting. Um, and yeah, anyway, well, here's here's me kind of playing Tibby Fowler and singing it uh, kind of hastily too. I'll, I'll have a link to the lyrics like all of Susanna's lyrics are worth looking at they're in dialect which I don't speak uh, so you can know, take all of my pronunciations and things with a grain of salt um, and I'll have uh, links to the to where you can look at the actual lyrics and it's, it's really worth looking through her book I'm sure uh, I'm, I'm hoping to revisit it uh, in the future just because there's so many gems in here I'm to be fowler o' oh, the glen and a grey sight to see But cause I'm rich these plaggy men will never let me be There's Bonnie Maggie o' oh, the bray as good as lass can be But cause I'm rich these plaggy men they run wild from me Bob Jock comes struttin' ban He thinks the day's his ain But where he a uh, hung round with gold He'd find himself mistaken. There's what I tries to glower and sigh That I may guess the cause But Jenny, like I hate to spell Dumb Rogers, hums and haws There's grinning Pete laughs all day through The blithest lad you'll see But truth he laughs say Out of place he'd laugh an eye to dee Sandy he say full a lear to talk wi him is vain For gin we are should say t'was fair he'd prove that it did rain Then Jamie frets for good and ill but small things make a phrase And fears and frets and things are not ding o'er his joyful days The priests and lawyers ding me dad but good kens what's the best And then comes in the soldier brave and drums out all the rest the country squire, the city bow, I had them on their knee, But will I can to gout they bow, They know downright to me. Should like of them come milk a day, They may wear out the knee, And grow to the ground as fast as stain, But they shall ne'er get me. Yeah, I quite like, uh, there's sort of a recurring, uh, list of characters or archetypes of kind of unworthy suitors that, uh, that, uh, that, that Susanna writes about in her poems and in her songs, people that think they have money, think people that talk out of place, that laugh in inappropriate moments or are just constantly nervous all the time or are constantly groaning or hemming and hawing, um yeah it's an interesting kind of recurring cast of characters uh I don't you know there's some there's several different biographies including one written by her great-great-grand nephew who just recently passed away um I should, I should read them some more. Like I said, there's, there's lots of exciting new stuff. I've just been looking at kind of the old things that have been published uh, of her collections, and I haven't honestly read the biographies that are part of those either. So there's lots of cool um, Susanna information out there. See, I'm, I'm not saying her last name anymore because I'm afraid I'm saying it wrong. Uh, especially, there's a lot of PhD students, maybe candidates, maybe PhDs now uh, that I've just watched some videos of uh, who, are, who are doing work on uh, Susanna stuff. Uh, who I'm hoping to pastor to, like, come on and set me straight or explain some of the musical things. But Susanna, like, she played. Um, she played guitar and. Uh, maybe some other stringed instruments, but she also played the flagolette, which is the the predecessor to the tin whistle. So where, you know, in the first episode of Season 7, I talked a lot about Christian Dalrymple, and the only instrument she had in her inventory of household goods was a harpsichord, and her music really reflects that. Like, it was so unfriendly to bagpipes. Whereas... Um, you know, Blameyer, she doesn't write down the melody, but it, it's fitting, I think, that a lot of the tunes that she selects from would fit really well in a uh, for her, her melodies. And there's there's all sorts of kind of poetical, uh, fanciful notions about her, uh, her interactions with music, uh, including stories that when she was just kind of traveling around and came across people making music that she liked, um, she would... Um, yeah, she is sometimes known to stop a wandering musician on the highway, dismount from her pony, and request him to strike up a jig or hindpipe while she, like Bonnie Maggie louder did shake her foot with right goodwill when he blew up his chanter, uh, which is kind of from. It's from it's an excerpt from one of the biographies that I, I guess I did read a little bit uh, of, um, but the it's interesting like watching watching these um, this webinar like she was bed bedridden a lot. Um, uh, but still you know felt the the love of music i suppose uh and all the more to to want to dance uh yeah Uh, and yeah some of the other cool things listening to these webinars that like all of these poems that she wrote she didn't she published some of the Scott songs I think in magazines in Scotland uh, but her poems and stuff which are quite moving and lovely she just circulated with friends and supposedly one time just nailed a poem to an oak tree um, and again she clearly had a a love for the the wilderness you know and kind of being out in the forests and things or, or woodland glades as they say here uh, anyway let's let's do another song from her so well, you're gonna hear a lot of me sing in this episode um, this next one is uh, I, I included it in here this is oh Jenny dear I've courted Lang and I, a couple things I think are interesting about this uh, one uh, the kind of refrain to this is a bunch of people complaining about marriage and then one guy says no marriage is good uh, and he it mentions that he's married to Tibby uh, which, you know, whatever, so Tibby Fowler doesn't get married in the previous song, but here we've got a guy who's married to a Tibby, probably not Tibby Fowler, but um, the other thing I really like about it, I'm so selfish when I'm looking for um, when I'm looking at music you know, you know here's here's Susanna Blamire who's just all kinds of important and interesting stuff. Uh, but what I'm excited about is, like, her songs. You can see which were the popular songs of the day by, by what she attributes it to. So this is the heir. Uh, she has this heir, Lucy Campbell. And, you know, which is a, a pretty common uh bagpipe-y tune. And uh, already you know, see it in some 19th century sources, uh, but here it is uh, already being, you know, popularly used as a melody in the 1780s by uh, Susanna Blameyer. So anyway, here's Oh, Jenny, Dear, I've Courted Lang, kind of along similar themes to um, the cast of characters and, and people frustrated with marriage. Jenny dear, I've lang I've my tale and sung me sing And yet I feel I may be wrong For you'll may make a wedding note And winter, when the frost and snow bitter blast around would blow I'd o'er the morn a mind the ta In hopes you'd make a wedding note And gin ye smile that kindly spake it smooth the road and helped me back I thought nay answer I would take For we would make a wedding note I gate a Kirk or fair the laddie's scoff, the lassies cheer, as as poor jock the good be here, for sure he's made a wedding note What has become a his a fun? Alack his joyful days are gone Or else he's pawned his dancing shoe since he has made a wedding note Sure marriage is a dreadful thing Your mind is only a the spring that little bird is chirp and sing until till they've made a wedding note. ups big honest johnny Bell my bairns i aunt was young miss. L. I've many a bloysome tale to tell, sin first I made a wedding note, my titty was a winsome bride, nay yet she is her old man's pride. I nay fought her eye respite, Sin a we made a wedding note. Elk day we live we fond a grow through buckled fifty years ago. Here's comfort for your young ones ah then haste ye make a wedding note. Apart from discussion of bad suitors, you know, being stuck in a marriage or uh, kind of the bad, the poor rights you have, uh, being in a marriage is a recurring theme uh, of a lot of uh, Susanna's work. This next one uh, is sort of a theme that comes up uh, and several times is this idea that, uh, you know, the courtship process, uh, certainly in the song we just heard, there's sort of a different world right? like when you're courting, everything's good and you're kind of hiding all the bad things uh, and then when you get married the truth comes out and that's what this next one is this is uh, O Donald, Ye Are Just The Man and I put it to an Eliza Ross tune uh, Donald, Will You Marry it's uh it's will you take a wife donald anyway uh it's track two on roly-poly but here it is with me playing and singing it with uh susanna's lyrics hands the kettle gives his cup without in thank you dear now truly these lights are but toys for free neglects like these the wife may soon as and grow and strive the mare to please for wooers I do all they can to trifle with the mind they hold the blaze of beauty up and keep the poor things blind but what is aware the veil the goddess is the mare he thinks his wife a silly thing she thinks her man a bear let then the lover be the friend, the loving friend for life. Think but thyself, the happiest spouse shall be the happiest wife. So, selfishly, like I said, one of the things I like about looking through Susanna's work is the various melodies that she uses for the basis. And she doesn't have one for the last tune, but Donald and Donald felt fitting enough, and I could kind of sing the song to that melody, so it felt good. This one, I've no doubt kind of what it was supposed to sound like, uh, and that's because she wrote a song and titled it... or she, she wrote a song set to the music of Jack Latin, which is a tune uh, that has absolutely been stuck in my head pretty much permanently and... Uh, yeah, um, um, yeah. I think it's weird. It's I, I recorded the William Dixon setting of Jack Latin for uh, my first album, Oyster Wives Rant, and I'm really, really, really tempting and tempted to revisit it on uh, Cold and Raw, this next album, just because I've been thinking about the tune a lot, and uh, I didn't, I haven't played it on the podcast yet, but I was thinking about. Uh, like it's a really fun tune to to switch from playing in the major kind of mode to switching it to minor Um, and I was thinking uh, especially with like the story of Jack Latin and the dance that just would make sense if he died and kept on dancing to Fairyland and then uh, that's how I like to represent switching to minor keys, right? So um, anyway, I wound up playing the tune kind of that way where i i played the tune sang the song and then uh the last time through went up slipping into playing it into the minor mode but this is a beast of a song so uh it was like my seventh time trying to record it and i was like okay well i just inadvertently switched into the minor mode we're just gonna include that one on the take this tune is really wild um this is a song so um so so miss Bullmeyer, i don't think she ever married um and but she had like a life i think a lifelong partner or at least she was girlfriends with someone and lived with a miss gilpin uh who so like that was like their lifelong partner uh or i don't know they had a close friendship they had a a writing collaboration and of course in my head just like with uh i guess i mentioned this on the patreon episode about christian dalrymple i just always wonder about these same-sex couples that you know of all the things that women have to keep secret um like same-sex attraction is certainly one of them but um anyway i, I don't know i need to read more of uh Blemeier's biographer's work before even you know running down that thread but anyway this is a uh, war of words is what the editor calls it uh, essentially miss Blumeyer and miss gilpin her her like long friend overheard this fight uh, between a husband and wife and kind of quickly wrote it down and uh, the the big collection I'm using of Blumeyer's poetry is Blumeyer and Gilpin because they they wrote together very often Um, and this, interesting enough like the the note here on the collection I think comes from Anna Gordon so uh, it says this war of words was actually overheard by Miss Blumeyer and Miss Gilpin Uh, the two ladies immediately wrote the song Miss G contributing the larger part mrs brown um so i don't know i don't know if that means that anna gordon or mrs brown actually is the had some of this collection maybe they were certainly contemporaries anyway here is the the song and it is it is wild like the uh, it's a really you just wonder like how are this who, where did this fight happen that was overheard like you know my brain imagines them sitting in a coffee shop which didn't exist probably in cumbria um i don't know sitting in a glade overhearing it i've been watching a lot of survivor lately so the idea of somebody eavesdrooping on somebody else in the woods makes a lot of sense too. i don't know uh anyway here it is uh just a wild wild song Cross, but what is that? I'll tell you all the matter Oh up your heads, I dell me care, say woman folk, man chatter And say they may they've much to say, but little are they minded. dead a see a fearful word, and they that Mary find it are to come in and said it rains, so says I, it makes no matter. ay, but it is to silly few, but woman folk clatter, they're here and there and everywhere, and me can sick a rumble, with a tit a grumble, grumble, grumble. To dick to dicks eye, There's not a life can match thee Thy tempers always bursting out And not a say can patch thee His ass and and silly snow as nithin' but a noodle Is he ring, he's never and Doodle,
1: doodle, doodle, doodle.
0: To give what I say isn't it as true as beable and can I put tea into print I love what we call both for dealer cloud can toast it on in any form of fashion. Or do you say a single thing to keep you out of passion? Guest, indeed, I is a toppin fellow. I think thy brass me the brass to dishear or unbellow. I but wish that I would def, as they we see a dingin'. I never can what is about a suck a ring ring ringin'. What tow's about, tow's always end up on die, Giving we thy open mouth, and wonder, wonder, wonder. But for the wonders of this world, I wonder we are married, As we have been a bonny thing, had uh, that breed out miscarried. I'll tell you what, twas I that made the blunder that I took up. We like thee, was far the greatest wonder. For tow is neither good nor rich, and tempered like old em that daily gangs o'er my head, but fratchem, fratchem, (laughs) fratchem. So yeah, uh, my pronunciations aside uh, and and singing qualities, there's a lot of things going on in that song that I think are really interesting. Especially this idea that it's a like caught in the wild argument, right? Um, so this couple, uh, Dick and I guess I don't remember they catch the woman's name, uh, who are married and not <laughs> clearly not very pleased about it. Um, but yeah, this whole idea, like yeah, they got married. clearly because, if I'm reading this right, or understanding this right, like they had a child out of wedlock, like that are not out of wedlock, but uh, they had a a, they got together, and she got pregnant Uh, because it's like second to last verse where he's like, yeah, it would have been better if you had miscarried, and then she says, well the real blunder is like, how in the world I wound up marrying you, because you were never rich you were never nice, and you have a temper like Satan, and you're just always Uh, it's really interesting, like Uh, But anyway, this idea... uh, I I don't know. I think people who listen to this podcast and hear me pontificate and talk about and read things from the 18th century I think are uh, uh, hopefully immune to any sensibility that people in the 18th century didn't have sex before getting married. But it's cool to see that kind of confirmed in this argument uh, that it's still a thing that you would bring up when fighting with your spouse. It's like brutal. Um, but anyway, the state of marriage and the rights of women is something that I really was first drawn to uh, Susanna Blumeyer for, and specifically she sings about things uh, that, uh, like, she sings about the status, or she has a, a song about the status of women uh, kind of in marriage, that femme cover the coverture, the being invisible in the law, which is very much a uh, reality for English women, specifically. And it seems like it wasn't a reality for Scottish women. And It's just it's a weird thing to me that like, it's so close to England, Uh, like England and like she's on the borders and she is singing angry about the legal status that she has as a woman, Um, and. It's just not a thing that we talk about, and it's like it's a thing that I didn't learn about until grad school, um, femme couvert, or coverture, and I don't know that people are terribly aware of it still, and so I'm, I'm going to include it here. Uh, and what's surprising to me is that it doesn't seem like women in Scotland are subject to uh, femme couvert or coverture in the same way that English women are, at least um, that's what a lot of the literature is kind of arguing. Um, yeah, I just wonder, all these women who ran off and got married at... Uh, um, at Gretna Green, right? Like, this is a, a common story in English folklore and history of people running away to get married in Scotland. Um, but yeah, I, I just wonder, how does Femme Covert play into all that? Like, are Scottish, if you get married in Scotland, do women retain some more rights? And it's, like, English law and Scottish law are such tricky things for me to really make sense of anyway, that, um, I don't know. I'm at a loss. Anyway, let's let's hear the song first and then I'll I'll play you some legal stuff. Uh anyway, so this is another song. So this is another Susanna Blumeyer poem, obviously, and it's I had a hard time tracking down exactly what the melody was. So it's Dear Nancy as the name of the song, and it is To the Air of Saturday Night. Um I was digging around trying to figure out what the air Saturday night was, and I never really came up with a satisfying uh, answer to that and I wound up kind of singing it roughly to a version of the melody of Hey My Nanny uh, or, or Hey My Nanny from uh, David Young uh, and I realized, I thought I was doing it to Hey My Nanny and then I realized after playing Hey My Nanny again that I was really doing a different version of it because Hey My Nanny is a 9-8 and I don't sing the song a 9-8 so uh, anyway here's here's Hey My Nanny first and then I'll I'll sing the song in my kind of adjusted version <laughs> The poor women, whatever's the cause, since by hardness of reason or hardness of fist, all wrong must be right if they choose to persist. I'd have you with caution in wedlock engage, for if once you are caught, you're a bird in a cage that may for dear liberty flutter the wing as you hop from the perch, but dischance chance if you sing. The man who in courtship is to please. Throws off his attention, and hears not no sees. Whilst her, who before, was the fairest of flowers, The cloud on his brow ever drenches with showers, And the man, whose rough manners were courteous before, Gives you every reason to look for no more, For such charles I've seen through the whole of their lives, Give naught but an oath or a frown to their wives, let her speech or her manners be e'er so bewitchin'. Why women should only give mouth in the kitchen, nor e'en there of the roast, for my lord must be by, and a finger must always have in every pie. Then he'd lifeless become to such silences prone, that you'd think him a statue just cut out of stone his fare when i wager not all year round hears aught of his voice say a hum and a ha sound now some to advise you all evils to shun. Did you ever be happy while holding your tongue but Jack Boaster has taught me that this will not do for when he is railing his deer shall rail too and Andrew McCrumble insists that his wife Shall ask pardon most humbly each hour of our life. And he's right, for since wedlock has made them both one, tis fit for such sin she should daily atone. So I'm cutting in here, uh, I've, I've had this episode done for a couple days, and I've had the chance to listen back to it uh, a couple times, and I've gone in and kind of made some adjustments, and I was just re-recording uh, a, a take I'm much happier with for the song you just heard, and it kind of dawned on me in the process of listening to it that, like, <laughs> the you know, my favorite Songs for the Halloween episodes and my favorite tales, like I was just talking about with Jack Latin, like oh, what if he just dances all the way to hell? But like, there's this this narrative of a fairy offering up a promise, and then you agree to that thing, thinking that you know the fairy who's kind and gives you gifts and has good music and dance and all this stuff that that's so that's going to be like, and then it turns out uh, that it's a curse of some sort, right? Like you get into it, and maybe the music's no longer good, or you think you're going in for a one night concert, and you're actually stuck there for ten years in a day or a year in a day, right? whatever. Um, Or they're just horrible, you know? It's just uh, a a false pretense and then evil. And I'm just realizing, after listening to all these Susanna um, uh, (laughs) Blamire, all these Susanna poems and songs, that like, this is just what life was like for women in 18th century Cumbria, 18th century England, 18th century Ireland, um, and to maybe a lesser extent, 18th century Scotland, but certainly... Uh, 18th century Scotland as well. This, you know, like you, all this, all of Susanna's narrative here. One of her recurring characters is the husband who is nice in the courtship phase and turns out to be a monster once the marriage has happened. Um, I'm sure I'm not the first person to come to this epiphany or conclusion, um, but since this is the season finale and I'm not going to be on here for a couple uh, for a month, uh, I just I wanted to like kind of put these thoughts in there as they are coming out, and then we'll go back to the next thing we're going to talk about here, uh, as as I had previously recorded. But yeah, uh, 18th century fairy songs are just, you know, especially when they're collected, it's just like men talking about the things that they're afraid, afraid of, which is what they're often putting their wives through, right? Oi. Like as with all of these songs, there's a lot to uh, kind of unpack or, or talk about here. But the thing that gets me really excited is the specific references to the legal status of women after marriage in that song. Um, I think because you know it's it's such a long distance from uh, when women were invisible in the law, and because it was such a new thing to me, like only in the last. 20 years or 15 years or whatever did I learn about, um, Coverture or Femme Covert, um, this is a, you know, a status that women were invisible in the law, which is the case in England and in the United States as a result of, like, copying English law, and, like, we, um, So when I talked to my students about this, I I was trying to find out, like, find some document to talk about Coverture or Femme Covert to kind of explain its meaning. uh, It's like how women are made invisible in the law, Um, because I I teach the Abigail Adams letter. She wrote uh, a letter to John Adams when they were kind of in the days of still organizing, like, in the early days of the revolution where it wasn't clear that there was going to be a revolution yet um, like people from Boston like Abigail Adams and John were certainly uh, expecting a declaration of independence at any moment and were hoping to build towards that but for the rest of the, the you know American colonies it didn't seem like it had gone that far yet uh but anyway in the letter literally the same letter that abigail's like i hope i hear of a declaration soon uh of independence uh she writes hey remember the ladies like don't make such a tyrannical system for women we should have some representation in the law too and john adams response is like if you if you're not familiar with this letter it's worth going and and reading again i'll have a, a link in the show notes but it's just like he laughs at her like he he thinks that she's flirting with him or he responds flirting uh and at one point even says like yeah i'm not going to give up you know it, as men know that we're not really in charge actually women are all in charge uh and so we need to hold on to this uh legal fiction you know of, of men being in charge otherwise there'll be a tyranny of the petticoat and uh, great heroes such as washington will fight against it essentially is is what he says um but yeah calls her saucy at it like it's just uh, it's sort of one of those like, oh man, this is uncomfortable. Uh, that John, like horny John Adams, off in Philadelphia, is responding to his wife saying, "Give us some rights, dude," <laughs> um, with like a, "Oh, you're so saucy." Uh, it's just, it's weird. It's icky. Um, but yeah, and I think so. So yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna play you uh, a, a legal excerpt, a discussion of. English law uh, from William Blackstone from the 1760s that kind of describes coverture, the this, this status that Susanna Blamire is, is writing about in this poem, about uh, that, yeah, she should daily atone, because when you married him, you made yourselves both one. Like, you, you've made yourself invisible in the law. You deserve, <laughs> you should apologize. Uh, anyway, so here's, here's the, the commentary for kind of femme coverture or coverture for, for English law. The following comes from William Blackstone's Commentaries on the Laws of England, from 1766. By marriage, the husband and wife are one person in law, that is, the very being or legal existence of the woman is suspended during the marriage, or at least is incorporated and consolidated into that of the husband, under under whose wing, protection, and cover she performs everything, and is therefore called in our law French, Femme Covert. Uh, is said to be a cover baron, or under the protection and influence of her husband, her baron or lord, and her condition during her marriage is called her coverture. Upon this principle of a union of person and husband and wife depend almost all legal rights, duties and disabilities that either of them acquire by the marriage. I speak not at present of the rights of property, but of such as are merely personal. For this reason a man cannot grant anything to his wife, or enter into covenant uh, with her. For For the grant would be to suppose her separate existence, and to covenant with her would be only to covenant with himself. And therefore it is also generally true that all compacts made between husband and wife when single are voided by the intermarriage. A woman, indeed, may be attorney for her husband, for that implies no separation from, but is rather a representation of, her lord. And a husband may also bequeath anything to his wife by will, um, for that cannot take effect till the coveture is determined by his death. The husband is bound to provide his wife with necessaries by law as much as himself, and if she contracts debts for them, he is obliged to pay them. But, for anything besides necessaries, he is not chargeable. Also, if a wife wife elopes and lives with another man, the husband is not chargeable even for necessaries, at least if the person who furnishes them is sufficiently appraised of her elopement. If the wife be indebted before marriage, the husband is bound afterwards to pay the debt, for he has adopted her and her circumstances together. If the wife be injured, In her person or her property, she can bring no action of redress without her husband's concurrence, and in his name as well as her own. Neither can she be sued without making the husband a defendant. There is indeed one case where the wife shall sue and be sued as a femme femme sole, where the husband has abjured the realm or is banished, for then he is dead in law and the husband being thus disabled to sue for or defend the wife, it would be most unreasonable if she had no remedy or could make no defense at all. In criminal prosecutions, it is true the wife may be indicted and punished separately, for the union is only a civil union. But in trials of any sort, they are not allowed to be evidence for or against each other, partly because it is impossible, for their testimony should be indifferent, but principally because of the union of person. And therefore, if they were admitted to be witnesses for each other, they would contradict one maxim of law, nemo in propria cause tesis es debit, and if against each other, they would contradict another maxim, nemo tenutur sepsum acufer. Uh, But, where the offense is directly against the person of the wife, this rule has been usually dispensed with, Uh, and therefore by statute 3rd Henry VII, case number 2, in a case a woman be forcibly taken away and married, she may be a witness against such her husband in order to convict him of a felony, for in this case she can with no propriety be reckoned his wife, uh, because a main ingredient, her consent, was wanting to the contract. And also, there's another maxim of law, that no man shall take advantage of his own wrong, which the ravisher there would do, if by forcibly marrying a woman, he could prevent her from being a witness, who is perhaps the only witness to the very act, very fact. In the civil law, the husband and wife are considered as two distinct persons, and may have separate estates, contracts, debts, and injuries, and therefore, in our ecclesiastical courts a woman may sue and be sued without her husband. But, through our law in general considers, though our law in general considers a man and wife as one person, yet there are some instances in which she is separately considered, as inferior to him, and acting by his compulsion, and therefore all deeds executed and acts done by her during her coverture are void, or at least voidable, except it be a fine or the like matter of record, in which case she must be solely and secretly examined to learn if her act be voluntary. She cannot, by will, devise lands to her husband, unless under special circumstances, for at the time of making it she is supposed to be under his coercion. And in some felonies and other inferior crimes committed by her, through constraint of her husband, the law excuses her. And this extends not to treason, or murder, but this extends not to treason or murder. The husband also, by the old law, might give his wife moderate correction, for, as he is to answer for her misbehavior, the law thought it reasonable to entrust him with the power of restraining her, by domestic chastisement, and the same moderation that a man is allowed to correct his servants or children, for whom the master or parent is also liable, in some cases, to answer. But this power of correction was confined with Within reasonable bounds, and the husband was prohibited to use any violence to his wife, aliter quam ad virum, ex causa regiminis, et genus virus foa, licite in resembler pertinent. The civil law gave the husband the same or a larger authority over his wife, allowing him, f- uh, allowing him for some misdemeanors, flagellis et uh, fufibus, ecritur, forbear exordum, uh, for others only modicum conflagation ad be here. Uh, but with us, in the politer reign of Charles II, this power of correction began to be doubted, and a wife may now have security of the peace against her husband, or in return a husband against his wife. Yet the lower rank of people, whom were always fond of the old common law, still claim and exert their ancient privilege, and the courts of law will still permit a husband to restrain a wife of her liberty in the case of any gross misbehavior. These are the chief legal effects of marriage during the coverture, upon which we may observe that even the disabilities which the wife lies under are for the most part in intended for her protection and benefit. So great, a favorite is the female sex of the laws of England. Oh, does that part just raw me up? Like, the last phrase, right? So great is the female sex. So favored. Like, uh, after all of this, yeah, you're invisible. Uh, Man has to do everything for you in the law. You can't do stuff on your own. Uh, And they can punish you. Uh, But, you know, most don't. Because it's old-fashioned. Only countryside people beat their wives now because they think it's funny. Oof. Just, uh... Yeah. Anyway, I, uh... my, My students always... It's so funny, like, uh... It very classically breaks down where the, uh... Many i have many women students have written their papers about that document who get outraged at many parts of it and then uh lots of men's takeaway is like oh the husband like accepts the woman's debt so like they're kind of paying for everything uh and i don't know blackstone says it's that they like them like this is a good situation for the women like it's a really it's a kind of a it comes late in the semester and it's always a little bit of a bummer when students haven't learned to uh like they haven't really taken the lesson home of being critical of the sources and not believing believing everything they say. Uh, uh, anyway, um, that's some, some commentary on femme couvert or coverture. Like I said, it seems like it wasn't a thing in Scotland, only based on um, the fact that women left uh, wills that were kind of beyond what women could do in England um, for like property rights. And I, I haven't read, there's some literature, like an argument being made of people saying women didn't live under coverture or femme covert in Scottish law so it's hard to like prove a negative that way but it's like based on wills and some court records but if like women who were married were in the court of law pretty regularly or in various courts that would kind of be the nail in the coffin for that argument like that would demonstrate that they weren't under coverture in this strict sense of Being invisible in the law, they're in the the court of law. So it sort of should be an easy thing to prove. Uh, So I kind of trust that scholarship without really diving into it much. Um, But I'm definitely inclined to dive into it a little bit more when I have some more time um, just to figure out quite why. uh, Like, because the things that I have read, you know, and and earlier in the season, I read my dissertation chapter that talks about Scottish women kind of in the same time period. And it it does seem like they are. The funny thing, like, I, I read from and, and talked about how uh, English women traveling to Scotland sometimes talked about them as being like beasts of burden and, you know, completely abused by their husbands. And it's sort of ironic then that that really, as uh, it seems like as Susanna um, Blamire demonstrates, like Scottish women had more legal rights than English women did, uh, especially once they were married. So um, anyway... Uh, some things to think about for the end of season seven here, and I guess like this, this is the perfect thing to go out on. I was I was not sure. There's some other things I wanted to do that I'm just not going to get to. I have like a whole John Sutherland's manuscript part two uh, tunes ready to go that I was going to include on in this episode, but we're already over time, so I'm not gonna. That'll have to show up sometime in season eight. Um, but I do want to go out. It seemed really fitting to finish with Susanna Blumeyer because she has a song written, uh, like, that goes to the melody of Cold and Raw. And Cold and Raw, uh, William Vicker's setting, has been our opening music this whole season. So it feels really appropriate to kind of, for the last thing we say of the season, to be a song set to the melody of Cold and Raw. And really, the frustrating thing, as always, is it makes me want to do a whole deep dive on Cold and Raw. Uh, so for Susanna uh, Blumeyer, her song here is Oh Jenny Dear, The Weird Is Gain, and she's—it's sort of another one of these. Here are all my bad, um, court uh, courting, people <laughs> um, songs. But it's—it's it's interesting that the the song "Cold and Raw" or the the tune is is quite old. Uh, it shows up in Playford's manuscript in the uh, 17th century uh, manuscript in his books. It also is in um, the Beggar's Opera uh, as. Uh, I Woke Up Early in the Morning or The Farmer's Daughter um, like there's several different songs unfortunately trying to find the 18th century version of The Farmer's Daughter is like nearly impossible because there's so many other songs called The Farmer's Daughter because it's such a common trope Um, but one thing that got me kind of excited and I couldn't find it any place other than just um, just traditional tune archive it's really lovely every time I'm I'm at my in-laws house like my my mother-in-law, her PhD is in, um, well, I'm not sure what her, her PhD is not in, I mean, it's in folklore, um, but it's specifically in, like, uh, African-American folklore folk traditions, I think, but she wound up teaching Appalachian folklore for most of her professional life. Um, And so she's a folklorist and spends a lot of time kind of dabbling in jack tales and uh, old English folklore as well for its influence on on Appalachia. So it's always fun to be like, oh, I just saw this cool thing, I need to check with Lynn and see if she knows what I'm talking about. But anyway, on traditional Tune Archive, there's this reference that cold and raw, which is also known as juice of the barley, um, and juice of the barley, like, all of these are the traditional Trunarch i suggested that juice of the barley or ale uh selling ale or juicing the barley is uh the female equivalent of sowing your wild oats. Like that is like that is some kind of metaphor that is often used to describe women going off and um, you know, they're juicing the barley or they're um, you know, uh doing that and uh, or selling ale. And I don't know, I couldn't like that didn't track with anything that my mother-in-law is familiar with and I couldn't find it uh, anywhere else. So anyway, it's interesting. The only interesting thing here is that um, you know the oil or the juice of the barley is uh, the the other name that this this melody goes by. Uh, anyway, so Susanna Blumeyer uses cold and raw as the Uh, the melody for this song. So that's how we'll go out with the same thing that has been the opening music for this entire season, and Cold and Raw will indeed be the title of the next album uh, that I'm putting out, which will be the best of tunes from Season 7. Some things to look forward to. I am going to take January off. I didn't have like a season break last time, and I didn't have a season finale last time, and I really regretted doing that. So we're going to take some time off. uh, Also... In no small part because I found out that I'll be teaching an Intro to Gender Studies course uh, online asynchronously for the first time ever, uh, and I have a couple weeks to design that course, so uh, I I need January to get my head straight while I'm doing that. Um, Anyway, um, things to look forward to on Patreon. Uh, as I finish this up, I have to find some uh, quite a few William Vickers tunes. But once I do that and plug that whole thing up, uh, my Patreon supporters can look forward to a season seven tune book. This even season, season six tune book is by far my the best thing I've put out on Patreon in terms of people interacting with it. It's been downloaded hundreds of times, but it's hundreds of pages of all of the the tunes that I have used for the podcast that are kind of available in archival sources. So I'll do the same thing for season seven, and it is shaping up again to be a big. One, the PowerPoint that I have open right now, uh, that is, you know, a lot of the melodies, uh, are, which is, you know, of all of the, all of season seven is 367 pages. A lot of that is duplicates or other things, but there's, anyway, the tune book is going to be well over 100 pages again. Um, so definitely if you haven't been uh, making your own toon book along the way or not downloading the individual ones on Patreon, it's definitely worth a a check-in on the Patreon feed to download this massive PDF filled with uh, archival sources from the 18th and 19th centuries to uh, fill your your piping and music uh, joys. Anyway. uh, Thanks everyone, sir, for hanging out and supporting the podcast. Uh, I'm going to release... The the feed's not going to go dormant. I'm going to release a couple episodes uh, over January when the podcast should come out. And they're kind of... I have been mentioning this before, how I'm kinda of thinking about the first episode of season eight being kind of a manifesto of like why I approach music the way I do or how I do after, you know, hundreds of episodes and or a hundred plus episodes and um so much so much music, like how I'm thinking about how to approach this stuff. So I'm kinda of looking forward to doing that and in order to make that happen I'm gonna put out some old episodes in the feed that have really influenced my thinking about approaching eighteenth and nineteenth century music, especially for bagpipers so that's what we can look forward to in 2024 uh, yeah happy new year everybody and thanks for supporting the podcast go to patreon.com slash to get that tune book and some other cool things uh, lots of bonus episodes and music only episodes over there and now let us go out to oh jenny dear the where does gain from the melody cold and raw from Susanna Blamire. Bye. Uh-huh. This race of man deserves no circle Truth can you wait till men are made of something like perfection I fear you wait till it be said you're late for your election Gay your choice, what think ye you, o oh young Harry? He ne'er shall hae my hand or voice, wha had a monkey marry He plays his pranks, he curls his hair, and acts by imitation. A dotted monkey does nae mair than if the tricks of fashion. Now, Sandy, he affects the bear and prowls at all that's pleasing. in ye a soft and jaunty air that air provokes his teasing. Can ye be cheerful, blithe, and free, and ah, that's unbecoming? Can e'er the heartsome temper be of any modest one? He's his, a share of learning Yet stretching out his words so tight They're sadly spoiled with darning He cons his speech, he mends his phrase For, for fear he speaks no grammar When done you'd think that, ah, his days He'd only learn to hammer No jockey as wit at well He sings, he plays, he dances His eyes so blithe, he's certain still To hit the young'uns fancy His words they flow with graceful ease They speak a heart makes tender Yet underneath these words that please There lurks a sadness